Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Time again for Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as I always like to do, I thank you for uh, taking the time to join us uh, for today's show. It's hard to believe, but we are now one week away from Election Day, which, given the extraordinary numbers of people who are voting early, will probably forever from now on not be known as Election Day, but be known as the final day of voting for uh, candidates uh, for office. Um, We do have extraordinary numbers uh, to report to you. As of uh, yesterday, 2,975,000 people have already cast early ballots in Georgia, either by absentee voting or by early in-person voting. And GPB radio political reporter Stephen Fowler reports that 10% of the precincts across the state, that's 272 precincts, are already showing uh, 50% participation in the election. And um, those numbers are fascinating. I want to start the show by talking a little bit about early voting with our panel. So let me get right to them and introduce them to you. Uh, Dr. Andra Gillespie is here with us. She, of course, political science professor at Emory University and the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute on Race and Difference. Uh, Andre, you know we're really happy to have you here as election as the election comes barreling at us. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by Julianne Thompson, a Republican strategist, longtime operative in Republican Party politics in Georgia. And uh, uh, Julianne, we're glad you're back with us today. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks so much for having me. And Melita Easters, the founder and director of the Georgia Win List, which has the mission of recruiting and then supporting women pro-choice Democratic candidates. Uh, This cycle, primarily, uh, and most cycles, legislative races. And Melita, I know you're eager to talk about uh, your efforts to elect uh, uh, some of the women or all the women on your list uh, this cycle and your hopes of turning the state house uh, blue. So thank you for being here as well. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. So uh, let's start by talking a little bit about these early numbers. Uh, Andre, I want to go to you uh, first on this. Um, consistently, as we've watched the early returns come in, we've seen that women are outvoting men by about 12 points. Um Women outvoted men by, I think, 10 points in the 2016 election. And as I've said every time we talk about this, reading the tea leaves is very, very difficult. But but if it's true, and we're going to talk a lot more about this in the show today, that uh, women are lining up a little bit more likely this year to vote for Democrats, should we read anything into the fact that women are 12 points ahead of men in voting early? Uh, I wouldn't read anything into that at this point. Um, because there's still, you know, so many days left in voting, even though if you want to go vote early, you got to do it by the end of this uh, week, by Friday. Um, I would expect that those numbers are going to tighten. So one, overall, women, they're going to be more women voters and they're going to be men voters. That's always the case. 
Um, but I would expect that more men are going to turn out sort of as we get closer to the election day, and maybe there will be more men who show up on uh, election day who are going to help to narrow that gap overall. The places where we are likely to see difference just based on past prior voting behavior um, are going to be in black and Hispanic communities where black women and Latinas are actually uh, very much more likely to uh, turn out to vote to cast ballots on Election Day. And given their Democratic voting proclivities, that's what's kind of sort of fueling a lot of the gender gap. It's not that white women don't vote more Democratic than white men. But when we're looking at their voting rates, those voting rates are actually a little bit more even when you're looking at groups that are going to vote 65, 70 or 95, 90 to 95 percent Democratic, and they make up a larger share uh, of their racial or ethnic group. Right. We can see how that group sort of is sort of some of the driving force behind widening um, any gaps that we may see. Melita. I would only add that there are a number of places, particularly in the Atlanta suburbs, where you have women running in highly um, contested congressional races, plus overlapping within that congressional race, you have women running for state Senate seats and state House seats. And so when you have three women on the ballot for the same geographic area, we sometimes have noted in the past that voter participation by women increases as women turn out to vote for their fellow women. So, Julianne, again, a lot of this is speculative. Andre has made that clear. Melita adds to that. Uh, but as long as we're speculating, let's add one more element to this. I'd love to get your reaction to it. The conventional wisdom has it that it is Democratic voters who are turning out early, not just in Georgia, but across the country. Uh, and that Republicans uh, are going to wait for Election Day. If if it's true that this huge surge, we're going to be over 3 million early voters uh, in the next day or so, and we're still four days left in early voting, uh, should Republicans start to be concerned <laughs> about making sure their voters get to the polls on Election Day? I haven't looked at a weather report, but if the weather is bad, if there are other factors that get in the way, uh, Republicans are going to have to work hard to make sure their voters turn out, right? Well, of course, they're going to have to work hard to make sure that they turn out. And I think that that's, that's an extremely important point. I do agree with everything that Andra and Melita said um, with regard to not reading too much into this, because we have to remember we've never been in a pandemic before. So there's a different situation going on here altogether. Yes, these are record-setting numbers, unprecedented but not surprising uh, for early voting and absentee voting during a pandemic. People are taking it seriously. They're trying to avoid the election day lines because of the maximum occupancy, because of the social distancing and, you know, protecting poll workers and protecting others. And I think people are taking that very seriously. And uh, Secretary of State Raffensperger has done a really great job at encouraging people to vote absentee and to vote early. So I think that that is um, one of the major reasons why we're seeing so much early voting and so much absentee voting, not just in Georgia, but across the country. But you are correct. Republicans do have a tendency to show up more on Election Day. They prefer Election Day voting. Um, to early voting, although the numbers of Republicans that I know of that have done early voting and absentee voting this year are greater than at any other time in history. 
So, you know, one of the things that's actually really interesting in terms of early or absentee voting participation is that before this election cycle, there was evidence to suggest that actually Republicans were going to be the ones who would be more likely to take advantage of absentee voting. If you look at national stuff, I have friends at Stanford who have been doing um, work in this area. And, and, and so, you know, we don't know what the equilibrium is going to be like sort of post Trump sort of casting doubt on all of this kind of stuff. So I expect that it's going to be different this year. But yeah, I think people should assume that, you know, there are fair numbers of Republicans who have already voted and that there is going to be this GOTV push on election day to make sure that Republican voters turn out to vote. Um, and so, you know, Democrats me, are going to have to match that. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I apologize for that. Let me, while you've got the ball and I'll bring Melita in on this after you, Andra, uh, Maya King, uh, published a piece in Politico yesterday about the turnout in uh, early turnout in Georgia. The lead is almost every black Georgia voter queuing up at the polls has a story about 2018. Most waited for hours in lines that wrapped around their voting locations. And she goes on to say now voter enthusiasm among all races is at an all time high in one of the most consequential battleground states in the country. And so is voter anxiety. Voters interviewed by Politico said anger over perceived voter suppression tactics is fueling their eagerness to cast early ballots. And indeed, Georgians are voting in numbers never seen before in the state's history. And Stephen uh, Fowler, Andre, the other day uh, did a tremendous piece in which he pointed out, after doing a deep dive into data, that the lines that it was polling places in largely minority precinct communities that had the longest waits uh, to, to uh, vote in the last election cycle. So what do you make of this notion that anger and anxiety are promoting this voter turnout, Andra? Well, um, so there are a couple of things to think about sort of in, in how anger and anxiety works. I don't know if I would characterize it necessarily as anger per se, in part because I'm driven by um, a friend, Devin Phoenix's work about anger. And so when you're thinking about sort of anger at the state of the world, that usually drives African-Americans towards uh, non-voting forms of political participation like protests. Um, but I think having anxiety and sort of, you know, this desire to be resilient in the face of voter suppression is something that's real and it's something that's worth examining. I'm not surprised that Stephen found what he found because there is survey data, for instance, where blacks report standing in line longer than their white counterparts, uh, which uh, sort of raised this as a red flag for people to pay attention to before you even look at the news stories. And I think we have to consider the ways, if there is some process by which uh, black districts and poor districts are being systematically underestimated in terms of their expected voter turnout, thus leading to them being under-resourced, so having fewer machines than they would need and other types of things. I think that this is absolutely worth exploring. And I think what we're seeing is evidence of just greater intentionality. Um, people are getting messages from the left and from the right about, you know, about voter suppression and voter integrity. And people want to be sure that they are intentional, and so they're, 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 they are planning their vote and making sure that they do everything. And that suggests that they're getting, the, that they are receiving the messages that have gone out from some groups to tell people, you might want to do this early in case there are any problems so that you have time to correct it. Melita? I just wanted to point out that there are some districts where the number of voters for the current cycle have already exceeded the number of voters who voted in 2016. For example, um, HD 52 in Shea Roberts and Sandy Springs. 
the number of voters in that district have already, and that's a race between two women, a Democratic woman and a Republican woman, there are already more votes cast in that district than in all of 2016. And the other thing that I think is really um, motivating women voters in particular, particularly progressive women voters who want to see reproductive freedom protected, is, is watching the U.S. Senate cram through a Supreme Court nomination and then seeing the president hastily con, um, swear her in last night in a rose garden ceremony, that really makes a lot of women really mad. And, and especially with the, uh, the possibility that the U.S. Senate will flip after November. Uh, Julianne, why don't you weigh in? I mean, the, the, obviously Republicans, certainly Mitch McConnell, certainly President Trump feel the Amy Coney Barrett uh, a confirmation is a great triumph for them. And it's become, they, Trump seems to believe that it will motivate voters uh, to come out and cast ballots uh, uh, for him. How, how do you view the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation? Well, I think that he's correct that it will motivate base voters and it will definitely motivate pro-life voters. Um, I, I don't share Melita's opinion about uh, women being monolithic when it comes to the pro-choice versus pro-life issue. I think women, you know, are, are definitely split on that issue. With regard to Amy Coney Barrett, I mean, the people that I talk to are extremely excited about the fact that he nominated her for a variety of reasons, because they feel like whether or not Trump wins the election, he's got his three Supreme Court picks, and people feel, actually, people feel very good about the fact that they do not feel that the Senate is going to flip. Yes, it's probably going to become more narrow of a majority, but they feel that the Senate is not going to flip, and people are understanding, Republicans are understanding the importance of focusing more on the Senate this last week than what has been focused on over the past several months. Um, Mitch McConnell, for all of the flack that he has taken from the base of the Republican Party over the years, do not discount the fact that Mitch McConnell is a shrewd and strategic, extremely intelligent um, majority leader in the Senate. He knows procedure. He knows the rules. And Republicans should appreciate the fact that he is on our side and we need to do everything humanly possible to hold on to the Senate and keep him in charge. All right. I want to change the subject for, uh, if I may, here, please. And Andra, since he's your colleague, I'll start with you on this. Uh, Alan Abramowitz, uh, after doing our show yesterday, went to work on uh, his final model, his final uh, predictions for the 2020 presidential cycle. I won't go into he the two models that he uses because it's really getting deep into the weeds. But if you want to see how he's come to the conclusions I'm going to share with you, I never promote this enough. You can do two things. You can follow us on Twitter at PoliticsGPB, which is the Political Rewind uh, twi Twitter, or you can follow me personally at NIGUTB, N-I-G-U-T-B, and on both of those uh, we'll have the uh, article that he's published in Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball. Okay, all that said, here's what he says, Andra. Two different methods that he used for forecasting the presidential elections. One model predicts uh, 
first predict, which was first published in early August, now predicts a Biden margin of 345 to 193 electoral vote. And a similar model, uh, or a different model rather, uh, shows Biden winning 350 to Trump's 188 electoral votes. I, that's, those are staggering margins, and uh, we both know that Alan Abramowitz has a great reputation for prognosticating based on crunching numbers, right? Um, and overall, he's got a very good track record. Um, so what was different this year based on his previous models is this is his real first very serious four-way. I mean, he did predict kind of uh, electoral uh, college voters who put something out there um, in 2016 that was in line with what everybody else did, which ended up, um, you know, not quite panning out even, and, and his popular vote model actually had Trump up in 2016. But what he did this year that was actually a little bit different was really sort of jump full speed ahead into um, into trying to predict the electoral college vote. And it was in part because his traditional model for predicting elections, which uses GDP growth, which uses the president's uh, 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 job approval rating, and uses time in office, wouldn't work as well this year because second quarter GDP growth was just so horrible, right, that it was just going to be this big outlier and it wasn't going to predict anything. So instead, he shifted the model to actually look at uh, approval ratings, um, which he notes were heavily correlated by what people thought about uh, the coronavirus. And that's what ended up getting him to this number in August. What he wanted to see in October was whether or not uh, people's, uh, if, whether or not President Trump's job approval rating was going to change, whether or not there was going to be some exogenous shock in October surprise that was actually going to change that. And so basically what he's putting out today is to say that there isn't anything that's changed much from the summer in terms of how people perceive President Trump, how people perceive how he's handling the pandemic. And so therefore, that's where he's getting to this particular global election. So, you know, we'll have to wait to see how this works uh, next week, because political scientists usually don't like to predict um, sort of the vote based on the Electoral College. But, uh, you know, this is I mean, if, if you walk through the article and sort of how he gets through all the steps. It makes perfect sense sort of what his logic is. And so, you know, I'm going to be really eager to see sort of what the actual outcome of the election is going to be. So, Julianne, clearly Republicans uh, don't think that uh, Donald Trump. Uh, I know there are Republicans who think it's possible that Trump <laughs> is going to lose. But uh, that mar- those margins that Abramowitz predicts are really staggering. But let me ask it in a different way. And Andra alluded to it. Um President Trump, no matter how hard he works at it, no matter how hard he tries to shift attention, is facing a final week in which the coronavirus just continues to be probably the single most important issue on the minds of voters. Fair enough? Absolutely, it is. And um, I think I stated on the last time that I was on that I thought that the coronavirus issue would actually be the Achilles heel for Republicans. Um, and, and I still think that. I, I think, though, that we also have to take into consideration um, the enthusiasm factor, whether or not that is going to result in a win for the president is, is still yet to be seen. But there's no doubt about the facts that are that Republicans are more enthusiastic for Trump than Democrats are for Biden. But I think what the Democrats are hoping for is that anti-Trump enthusiasm factor, which is also there. And I think that that is what they are hoping for um, in in their get out the vote efforts. So while I do think um, 
that you that that this particular article where uh, he states such a huge, huge landslide of electoral college votes for Joe Biden. I think that that's probably um, a little overstated. This is such a bizarre election year. We have never had anything like this before. We have never been in a pandemic before. We have never faced the kinds of things as a nation that we have faced in 2020. So this is a very, very difficult election to handicap and try to figure out. So I, I'm not going to try to predict anything. Okay, Melita, why don't we give you the last word before we have to take a break? Well, I can agree with Julianne that it is a bizarre election year. And I, I think that the absolute fact that President Trump and the National Republican leadership has botched the United States response to the coronavirus because many thousands, hundreds of thousands even, have died needlessly if we had had a coordinated national response to the virus in the same fashion that other countries, many of them led by women, who actually tackled the virus with a smart scientific-based approach and wore masks. So the the... The dilemma Republicans find themselves in with the coronavirus was entirely preventable if there had been great leadership. But there are many, many reasons Democrats are excited about this election cycle, which have nothing to do with coronavirus, because there are progressive platform issues around which Democrats find great resonance. Um. And you're seeing that in your in many of the races you have for legislature. How many women do you are, are you uh, promoting for uh, election to the legislature this uh, this cycle? We have 54 total women endorsed, but some of those races were decided in primary elections, and we have 41 women endorsed right. on the primary ballot. And some of these women, I might say, have out fundraised the sitting Republican incumbents they are running against. And we see the kinds of mailers being sent against our women who are challengers, so full of distortions and lies and misrepresentations that we know Republicans are running scared and we know that they know we can flip those seats. All right, I want to talk more about uh, the, the legislative race, and, and I want to talk about Joe Biden's visit to Georgia uh, today. Uh, before we get to any of that, though, let's get our first break out of the way. We'll be right back with more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Julianne Thompson, Melita Easters, and Dr. Andre Gillespie with us for Political Rewind today. Joe Biden makes a, what, what I think it's fair to characterize as an unusual uh, visit to Georgia in the final week of the election, because certainly we haven't seen Democrats uh, contest Georgia at the presidential level with this kind of energy. 
really since 1992 when Bill Clinton made uh, Atlanta his first stop after the New Hampshire primary where he came in, uh, had a poor showing, but called himself the comeback kid. In any case, uh, I want to talk about Biden's visit to Warm Springs today, but I also want to talk about women and how they may be helping uh, to give Biden a chance to be truly competitive in this state. Uh, the latest polling from the AJC shows what all the other polls do, which is that it's a it's a dead it's it's a dead tie. I mean, it's it's a dead heat between uh, Biden and Trump here. As we get set to talk, let me play for you some sound that the Daily. Uh, the show that we run at 7 o'clock at night on GPB Radio used yesterday. They went to Ohio and talked to women who had in the past not necessarily supported the Democratic candidates for president, one of whom had supported Trump. Um, And they wanted to know why the women were now changing their minds and looked now like they were going to vote for Joe Biden. And you're going to hear three women back to back and what they have to say. And then I want to get the panel's reaction. And remember, Ohio's a state that Trump won by about eight points uh, in 2016, whereas he won Georgia by five. Here are those voices. My daughter is seven and we had a conversation at breakfast the day after he got the positive test result and um, been like, she she can't get past this like why wasn't he wearing a mask like she's got to wear a mask every day all day at school and I'm like okay how do you explain to a seven-year-old like why the president of the United States is not wearing a mask and she has asked more than one time like why wouldn't he do that you know and it's like I don't know how to answer you you know my nine-year-old said his choice of words sounds a little malicious but he's not he said I'm, I'm kind of glad the president got COVID because he made fun of Biden for wearing a mask. <laughs> nine-year-old. Like, like, excuse me, Mr. President, my nine-year-old heard you. <laughs> he was listening when you made fun of us for wearing masks. We learn how to share. We learn how to listen. We take turns. We think of others. And these are the things that are drilled into our heads as suburban women every day because we are drilling them into the heads of our small children every single day. So when we have a leader who's holding the highest office in the land who would really benefit from a couple of days in our homes learning some of these basic things, the contrast is too great. Ohio women telling the Daily why they are now supporting Biden, but more important, why they've turned against Donald Trump. Andra, the AJC poll released yesterday shows that uh, Biden has an edge 52 to 43 percent over Donald Trump among women voters. And I think the voices that we just heard are some of the reasons why that's true. Yes, Um, I think that that's part of it. But again, I think race is important. So if women of color are making up a larger portion of women voters in general, and they are much more likely to vote Democratic than their white female counterparts are, even if white women are still voting more Democratic than white men, then that certainly is going to be a big driver behind those overall numbers that we see. That being said, I do think that there is a shift that's happening um, amongst uh, college-educated white women in particular. Um, and so I don't know the educational background of the women who you were speaking to there, but, like, you know, um, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton get about the same proportion of votes amongst college-educated white women 
um, in 2016. Um, and so we saw a shift in 2018, and we won't compare 18 to 20, but I would not be surprised if uh, college-educated white women as a whole vote decisively um, for Joe Biden in this particular election. Okay, but Andrew, let me let me just elaborate on that with you for a minute. I, I get that these were these were obviously white voices that we heard, suburban voices, I believe. Um, and yes, of course, African American women make up a lot of the reason why uh, uh, Democrats, Biden in this case, uh, are moving ahead. But if we have white, when we talk about white suburban women coming over to the Democratic column, that could have a big impact on on the election. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it, Joe Biden has to have a multiracial coalition, so he can't get elected on just the votes of people of color, right? That only makes up about, you know, 30 to 35 percent of the electorate. So he does need white women. So if uh, there are sort of more white who are likely to, to vote Democratic than Republican in this election, then that's a harbinger of success for him. Um, but I think we need to sort of give people of color their due. Part of the reason why Biden is in the position that he's in um, is because he's got people of color, particularly African-Americans, at the base of that multiracial coalition. I really point well taken. After all, it was African-American voters in South Carolina who actually turned the entire campaign around for Joe Biden. So I'm glad you made that point, Julianne. Uh, and then, Melita, what do you make of those voices you heard, but the larger question about women and the presidential race this year? Julianne? Well, I do think that women are going to be deciding this race and many races to come in the future. Um, and I've said many, many times the importance of messaging, the importance of a messenger, and the importance of understanding how uh, a personality of a candidate affects women um, either charismatically to make a woman want to support someone or, or people whose personality turns women off as far as voting is concerned. But I don't think that that Biden has just I don't think that he has necessarily focused on suburban women. That is not what I see when I see his visits, when I hear him talking on television. What I'm seeing him focusing on is something that Democrats haven't focused on in quite a while. And that is the blue collar vote, um, which is something that Democrats have lost over the past election cycle when they, you know, so many blue-collar voters felt insulted by the way that they were categorized by uh, by the Democratic Party. And, you know, they migrated over to Donald Trump. They were those Reagan Democrats that, that came over and voted for Trump. And what I have seen Biden doing um, in the last couple of weeks is really trying to focus in on those blue-collar workers and trying to bring them back into the Democratic Party, whether or not he's successful at that um, remains to be seen. But I think his visit to Warm Springs, I think his focus on the Rust Belt states, I think that um, his trying to channel JFK and trying to channel FDR and the old Democratic Party versus the new, newer, more progressive Democratic Party is a way that he is trying to uh, to bring in those blue collar voters that migrated over to Donald Trump in 2016. I think that what we really need to um, focus on is the fact that women 
care about how we bring up our children or our grandchildren. And having a president who models the kind of behavior we want our children to grow up with is an important thing for women. And it has been very, very hard to have a potty-mouthed president who exhibits behavior in public that we would not wish to see our children model. And I believe that is a factor for many, many women. And I think the visit to Warm Springs um, not only harkens back to the old democratic values, perhaps, as Julianne mentioned, but it also harkens to the place of despair many Americans find themselves in. Those people who are out of work, those people who have had COVID, recovered from it, but live with um, a future of uncertain medical eventualities, who live with now a pre-existing condition they worry will not be covered by health care. COVID has exacerbated the great inequalities in income that the current economic system perpetuates when tax cuts overly favor the rich. So the visit to Warm Springs is a far wider, greater um, indicator of where the Biden administration would hope to take this country as we emerge from the current pandemic crisis and come out on the strong, on the other side of it, a stronger America. Andra? So, you know, I think there are things I'd like to piggyback on from both Julianne and, um, and Melita. So, you know, I think one of the things that's actually really important to point out is that uh, uh, non-college or working class whites had been voting Republican actually for a long period of time. People just discovered it in 2016 and realized what was happening. But the trend had actually already sort of been going on and not just in the South, outside of the South before then. Um, so, uh, you know, it becomes a question of whether or not Democrats have been having this argument about whether or not it's actually worth it to reach out um, to working class whites. And some people have said, no, Joe Biden, you know, would want to make overtures uh, towards this particular um, constituency. Um, you know, I think it is interesting that Vice President Biden chose to do something in Warm Springs. Sort of invoking the New Deal doesn't seem to make a whole lot of a sense to a lot of people who weren't born during that time, don't have a lot of access to it. And frankly, you know, the New Deal coalition fell apart a long time ago. Um, but you can still see the vestiges of it sort of in this. And so, you know, I, I, I do think that, you know, what he may be trying to evoke here is sort of his empathy. Um, it does seem to be kind of, you know, I, I, I see the connections between that and one of his most recent ads, which is all about how he is empathetic and sort of having that fireside chat and start talking about how he's going to make people calm. Um, but I think sort of in this time where it's uncertain, where people care about their health, and so this is where I might differ a little bit with Julianne, um, you know, if suburban women are, and I can't tell from the uh, UGA survey, so whether or not this is true because they don't break it down by region um, or by the type of community in which one lives, if people are concerned about the virus and have had their lives upended by it, which I think is a pretty fair assumption, right, having somebody who looks like they care about that issue is actually a place where Joe Biden may actually hope to, to, to make inroads, right, because everybody has experienced some type of, of disruption. 
Um, and so I would argue that that is a suburban issue as much as it's an urban issue. Probably, you know, we could argue in, in, in certain um, poor communities how it's even a more urgent issue about how to deal with that. But I also wonder whether or not sort of evoking Franklin Roosevelt is actually meant to signal something more to older voters, where Joe Biden has been, uh, you know, has been gaining compared to other uh, Democratic presidential candidates to evoke something for them that, you know, is somewhat nostalgic, but also sort of is something that would resonate a little bit more with them because they do remember sort of what, you know, the New Deal era looked like in politics and what the sort of post-World War II sort of America was like. So I want to pick up on a couple of things here. Uh, number one, just I, I, I think you probably all out there in the audience know this, but of course, Warm Springs is the home of the Little White House, which was where uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, retreated when he wanted to get away from the stresses of uh, life up in the Northeast. He was going there long before he became president of the United States. It was a very important part of his life. And by the way, if you have never visited the Little White House or been to Warm Springs, um, it's an essential visit. It is one of the most extraordinary places, I think, in the state of Georgia to see this tiny little house that FDR uh, lived in and where, in fact, he died. Um, it, so by all means, I think if you can go down to the Little White House at some point, you ought to do it. Okay, from a political point of view, Julianne, uh, Jim Galloway in his column today points out that uh, Warm Springs is in Meriwether County. Meriwether County is uh, rural Georgia, certainly, and it went for Donald Trump. I think it gave Donald Trump 54 percent of the vote. So to some extent, maybe Joe Biden thinks a visit there could help turn a rural part of the state uh, from red to blue. We'll see if that's really possible. Um, so I think that's worth considering. And Julianne, because you're a political, you, like Melita, have been a political strategist, I'd also like you, you and Melita to weigh in on this. It's really unusual for a presidential candidate in the final week of a race to go to such an out-of-the-way place. I mean, efficiency is what you want to do, and that you want to get to as many places as you can, cover as much ground as possible in the last stages of a race. And the fact that the Biden campaign is sending him down to Meriwether <laughs> County, uh, which is a little harder to get to, although I assume he's flying in, uh, is an interesting sign of how they feel about where the race is headed around the country as well as in Georgia. So Julianne and then Melita weigh in on that. Well, sure. Well, first of all, it's a, it, Warm Springs is a classical backdrop for a Democratic candidate. Like I said before, channeling that the whole FDR era of the Democratic Party, um, which I think that he is trying to do. And also... I think if you look at 2016 and you look at 2020, one of the reasons why Trump was so successful in 2016 is because he did not ever feel like there was any demographic or any location or any group of people that he should not try to make inroads with when it came to getting out the vote. And I think that, um, I think that the Democrats have seen that and that that is now what they are trying to do with regard to Georgia. They're not writing Georgia off. They're not writing Texas off. They're going into those states and um, trying to flip them. So I think that that people have learned that no group should be written off, that it, it should never be said, should we waste our time with this group of people? Because 
just a small percentage of a specific demographic or a specific group of people can determine whether or not a person wins or loses an election. I also think, though, that the Warm Springs location has been used as a backdrop for Republican presidents as well as Democratic presidents as a symbol of overcoming adversity, um, both for the nation as a whole um, in emerging from the Great Depression, but also for the personal adversity FDR overcame by bathing in the warm waters of Warm Springs to overcome his own polio. But I think the other thing that's very important about Biden's visit is he is he is reaching out to rural Democratic voters who once dominated the state and have shifted to Republican, but he's welcoming them back into the fold. And he's showing support for two white rural legislators. Debbie Buckner and Bob Trammell, the minority leader, who Republicans have targeted. Um, it's well known that, that the Republicans would like to reapportion Debbie Buckner's district. And Bob Trammell is facing um, Republican efforts to spend $1 million in his tiny rural district to defeat him. So these are important overtures by the Biden campaign. So Mary Margaret Oliver on the show the other day, uh, in talking about the, that million dollars that uh, the Republicans are spending to try to unseat the minority leader in the House, Bob Trammell, uh, she said, what the heck can you spend a million dollars on in Meriwether County? Which isn't a bad point to make, but there's no question that Trammell uh, is really, really fighting for his political life down there. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with more on Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. We're back on uh, Political Rewind. Uh, quick program note. Uh, next Tuesday night, um, we're going to be uh, uh, staying up with you to cover the election returns as they come in on GPB uh, radio. Um, we're going to, um, I'll be doing uh, uh, some reporting and analysis very early on during All Things Considered at 6 o'clock. At 7 o'clock, we're taking a show uh, from WNYC that will give voters a chance to call in and talk about how they cast their ballots. I'll be doing cut-ins uh, for that. And then at about 7 to 7.15, uh, the Political Rewind team will begin uh, alternating with NPR coverage of election night to bring you the latest on what's happening here in Georgia. So I hope you'll join us for that. Uh, the last time we did a presidential election in 2016... We were up until 2, 2.30 in the morning, uh, <laughs> continuing to uh, cover the race. And who knows? I mean, we may be covering this election for the week after it. But in any case, I wanted to let you know, uh, next Tuesday night, we'll be with you throughout the evening. So join us on GPB uh, Radio. Also, tomorrow, we got a panel that's going to talk specifically about all the health care issues that are at stake 
in uh, the elections uh, next week. So uh, we look forward to having you join us for that. Okay, um, Andre Gillespie, Julianne Thompson, Melita Easters are with us. Let's talk about money and the uh, United States Senate races here in Georgia. Um, Melita Easters, the a, a PAC associated with uh, uh, Chuck Schumer, the minority leader in the uh, U.S. Senate, has uh, said it's going to drop another $10 million to support the campaigns of Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff in Senate races one and two. A staggering sum of money. Uh, but it does appear, if you look at the AJC polling and the other polling, number one, that the, that the, the Purdue Ossoff race is a dead heat and could be headed for a runoff because of the Shane Hazel uh, uh, libertarian candidacy on that ballot. And Raphael Warnock in that bigger jungle race in Senate race number two is leading the field by a considerable margin. So Democrats are going all out to see how far they can get in both those races, Melita. They are, and with good reason. And it will be very, very interesting, particularly if we have two U.S. Senate races and runoffs in Georgia clear into January, the assault of television ads through every program cycle will not end on November 3rd in Georgia. And it will be very, very interesting to see this state and continue to be in the center of the national spotlight on those two Senate races. Um, I, I think it's very interesting to see how much money Kelly Loeffler is having to spend to attempt to make the runoff in that Senate race. And it, it's, it's absolutely um, true that she does not represent all women. And I think it's very interesting that even Speaker Ralston um, says of her career, she, she talks about how hard she worked to get where she is. And Speaker Ralston quite correctly says she married well. And I, I think it's going to be very, very interesting because she does not represent all women. There are many suburban families who don't yet have their first corporate jet, not, not to mention two. So it's going to be a very, very interesting election cycle clear into January. Um, Julianne, I think it's fascinating. In the debate that uh, the Atlanta Press Club staged uh, with the uh, leading candidates in Senate race number two, Kelly Leffler, for the first time, played a gender card. Uh, when she was attacked by Doug Collins at one point in the debate, she turned it around on him and said, you've attacked my makeup, you've attacked the clothes that I wear, um, you've uh, attacked my husband's money. Um, and, and in fact, is there a chance that when Melita makes some of the comments she's making, she too may be ed- kind of edging out toward, uh, you know, talking about her husband made her rich, t- toward a, a question about how we're treating women in this race? Oh, well, I think that that's, that's a very good point. Um, I was actually surprised to hear Melita say that, talking about um, Jeff Brecker's money. Um, I, you know, I, I have not come out in support of public support of either candidate um, because I've remained neutral in this race. But this race has been one that has uh, caused significant division among the base of the Republican Party. And, And I quite frankly cannot wait for the jungle primary to be over with. The thought 
I'll um, bet. <laughs> the, the, thought, the thought, and I know it's going to go to a runoff, but the thought of of these commercials continuing on into January through January 5th is just extremely depressing. But I know that it's going to happen. But, but looking at the numbers, just looking at the numbers, when you talk about uh, the newest poll and the fact that Warnock is in the lead, yes, Warnock is in the lead, but the the number you know if you look at his 34 percent and you look at Leffler's 20 and Collins 21, um, if you look at the October uh, 23rd poll, the WSB poll that has Warnock at 33, Leffler at 23, and Collins at 27. But when you add the 27 and the 23 together, it, you know it, it still comes out to more than 33 percent. So I still think right. that the Republican is in the lead in that race. And it's going to. Thank you. I want to give Melita a quick chance and then Andre, because we're running short on time. Melita, respond. The the amount of money um, of their personal fortune, which um, Senator Loeffler and her husband have spent, makes any comment about that um, expenditure fair game. Um, you wouldn't talk about the amount of money they have except for the fact that the amount of money they are spending on political races, primarily on hers, but in, in support of other Republicans, makes um, that position um, fair game in political discussion. Uh, Melita, and, thank and you. No Andrew, one real of, quick thing. I'm sorry, Melita, finish real quick. And no amount of money can buy the appearance of her being empathetic when she is not, and no amount of money can buy the respect of her fellow women business leaders when she doesn't have it. Andra, why don't we get a last word from you on this uh, before we uh, end the show today? You know, I think we are grappling with what to do with power couples just in general. And so whether it's Kelly Leffler and Jeff Sprecher whether it is John Ossoff and Alicia Kramer, because he's claiming a lot of stuff about healthcare on the back of her medical degree, um, or whether we're talking about Bill and Hillary Clinton, right? We don't know how to deal with this. And I think that there's some really hard conversations um, to be had. I hope we can explore them here, um, something I may write about a little bit later. But I think that, that there are a lot of things that have come up here. Um, and I think that there's a lot of criticism to be deployed uh, for both Democrats and Republicans in terms of how they use this. Andra, I don't have a lot of time for a response, but one thing I do want to ask you very quickly about is uh, we know that if Raphael Warnock ends up in a runoff with one of those Republicans, there's a lot of ammunition Republicans will use against him based on sermons he's given over the years. But he's had a unique opportunity to define himself before the opposition can define him, and that's a huge advantage for him in a runoff, isn't it? I think so. I mean, I think ultimately what's going to happen in those runoffs is going to be about turnout. So this is going to be about, you know, who can make sure that they remind their voters to show up right after the holidays. All right. We are out of time uh, for today's Political Rewind. My thanks, as always, to Dr. Andre Gillespie, to Julianne Thompson, to Melita Easters for a terrific conversation. As I said, uh, tomorrow we're going to talk about the health care issues in the race. And by the way, on Thursday, Speaker David Ralston is going to be joining our panel. It'll be interesting because he's uh, uh, supporting Doug Collins. Eric Tannenblatt will be here. He's supporting Kelly Leffler. And then Buddy Darden, our Democratic friend, will be here to keep them both honest. So over the next couple of days, some interesting shows for you. That's it for us today. I'm Bill Nygut. 
it. Until I see you tomorrow, please take care. Stay healthy, wear a mask, and go get a flu shot, for goodness sake. See you all tomorrow.